again, and uh, I, I'm Rick. I'm, uh, I know we introduced me. It's an odd way to start, isn't it? Like, you've just heard from me, but now you're going to hear again. Hello, I'm Rick. And uh, I've been invited to continue your series working through John's Gospel. And today marks the, uh, uh, the beginning of a, I would like to describe, a corking piece of Scripture. It's a really, really good bit. Yes, I know it's all God-breathed. Yes, I know it's all fit for reproof. But... This is a great bit, and the uh, former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, William Temple, he once wrote this, John 17, which is commonly known as the High Priestly Prayer, is perhaps the most sacred passage in the four Gospels. And the reason for this is that I'm just going to look at the first five verses today, but this chapter is a rich and honored peak into the life of of the Godhead, the Trinity, the the God who is three in one, as Jesus the Son prays to the Father in heaven. In John 17 are the, the intimate whispers that have murmured through eternity as Father, Son, and Spirit, the three persons of our one God, have planned and spoken creation, salvation, resurrection into being. What a privilege this morning to be a fly on the wall in the boardroom of God. So in this uh, passage about prayer, I'm I'm not going to look too much into how this teaches us to pray, though it it does. You know, Jesus starts as he instructs us in Matthew, you know, praise to Abba Father. But Jesus, he he prays concentrically, which is a really fancy way of saying, you know, if you go down to Fish Keys, and I go skimming there with my kids sometimes, uh, and you, you, you plop a, a stone in there and the ripples come out. Those are concentric circles. That's kind of how Jesus prays. Because the first five verses that we're going to look at today, Jesus prays for who? Himself. He prays for himself. And then uh, next week, Joel is going to take on the baton and therefore correct anything I do wrong this morning. Uh, but uh, from verses 6 to 19, um, is Jesus prays then for his disciples who've been with him for those three years. And then, most wonderfully of all, verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for all Christians in the future. It's just the most wonderful thing. We see ourselves in these pages. Jesus prays for you. Isn't that wonderful? And guess what? He's still doing that today, so that's good news. Anyway, that's in future weeks. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I'm going to read uh, from uh, this. I'm reading from the ESV. This is John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. We heard this just now. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I don't know about your church background, uh, where I'm from, uh, the three-point sermon is king, okay? 
the, the reason for this is because just like in, in jazz music and in comedy, uh, there's something about threes in rhetoric and speaking that just awakens the soul and, and, and engages us and clicks us into it. I don't think this is a surprise, by the way, because we're made in the image of a triune God, but it, it helps us remember things. I'm going to let you off today. There's not three points. There are two. And it goes like this. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, Father. Christ asked to be glorified that he might glorify the Father in return. But before we dig out those two points, it's worth asking you know, where we are and when we are in this narrative. And as, as to where, we don't really know because the Holy Spirit writing through John, he's not bothered by giving us geographic specifics in this passage. So A, don't get hung up too much about it because if God wanted us to know, he'd have told us. But secondly... The where is kind of informed by the when. It's informed by the when. Because how does Jesus start? He says, Abba, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Now, throughout uh, his gospel, John has been sowing tension, which he now reaps. And I wonder if you've noticed it as you've gone through it, uh, Regent Chapel, as as you've been working through his gospel. Because at the wedding of Cana, all the way back in John chapter 2, what happens? They run out of wine. His mum runs up to him and says, what are you going to do about this? And what does Jesus say? Stop pestering me. My hour has not yet come. And yet, (laughs) because he's a God of mercy, he transforms water to wine, foreshadowing the new life and land that will be won in his hour. My hour has not yet come. In the temple and in the treasury, uh, John tells us that Jesus manages to evade being arrested uh, because his hour had not come. So it's not yet, but now it is. And we've had our interest peaked and our hope peaked as this hour has been promised. Jesus said to the woman at the well, he says, the hour is coming when you don't need to worship on the mountains of Samaria or the mountain of Jerusalem. The hour is coming when you can worship the Father in spirit and truth, wherever you are, whoever you are. The hour is coming, Jesus says in chapter 5, when the dead, the actual dead people, will hear the voice of the Son and will be raised and judged. So we're looking forward to this, this, this hour. It's exciting, but with some apprehension as well, because also, you know, we heard it last week. <laughs> the hour is coming... When you'll be scattered. Yay. And when Jesus, in chapter 12, finally said the hour is upon us, he really he started this process that finishes today. He says the hour is upon us for glory. Chapter 12, verses 20 to 26, he follows it up by talking about death. A cheery sort, that Jesus. The hour is upon us. You've been waiting for it. Let me tell you about a seed that falls to the ground and dies, that it may rise up again and produce much fruit. John has built the tension to this point. All through the gospel, the hour had not yet come, but it was to be expected and anticipated as a moment of glory and a moment of terror. And Jesus now says the hour has come. Bush, we're here. 
The moment when the dead would be raised, when new wineskins would be needed, where all flesh, it says in verse 2, all flesh, not just those in Jerusalem, not just those in Samaria, but all flesh would hear the voice and know the authority of the Son. This is Jesus' moment of glory. This is how the Father glorifies the Son. See, strange as it may seem, when Jesus calls on the Father and says, glorify your Son, he's actually asking for strength. He's asking for the Spirit to empower him to endure the arrest and crucifixion that marks this hour. Jesus says, glorify your Son. Glorify your Son by that, he means, take me to the cross. It's a shocker, isn't it? When we think of glory, <laughs> we think of wealth, success, fame. When Jesus speaks of glory, he talks about execution. And it's in this mood of execution that leads many scholars and commentators to conclude that actually this is probably John's account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. You know, the, the moment in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus is reported as being in fervent prayer to the Father. He says, I'm about to die. I really don't want to. If I can avoid it at all costs, please, God, Father, listen to me. It's your son. I'd like to not die. And yet, of course, he's obedient. But the, the, the process of it, he's, he's in such anguish that he sweats blood. That's the mood of John 17. That's what drives him to his knees in prayer. I mean, doesn't he look up, you know, what's the expression? This is the hour. This is the moment. This is the day of the Lord that was prophesied centuries before when Christ would be glorified. Hey, another way of saying that is lifted up for all to see. That's how he describes, I skipped over one earlier, chapter 12, verses 27 to 32. That's how he described this hour as the moment when he would be lifted up. And take on himself scorn, shame, suffering, and death. Glorify your son, Jesus prays. Lift up your son, and he is. Because as you get to chapter 18, Regent, you'll see as soon as he finishes this prayer, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried, and chapter 19, he's going to be crucified. And that is his moment of glory. I think we'd expect in our, in our moments of glory, wouldn't we, to be held up for all to see. Yes. But in a moment that made us look good. Not naked and bleeding on a cross. Christ's moment of glory is sacrifice. Christ's moment of glory is name-calling. Christ's moment of glory is beatings, tearings, and piercings. And death. Glorify your Son. Empower me, Father, 
to drink the bitter cup, to be obedient. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Lift up your son for all to see. And we shouldn't be surprised because this is the gospel, isn't it? This is the gospel. What does Paul write in in 1 Corinthians? God chooses what is foolish. God chooses what is weak. God chooses what is low. God chooses what is despised in the world. And there's not much worse than being hung on a cross naked. God uses that to shame the wise and the strong so that we may not boast. This is the gospel, that God takes what is shameful and transforms it into glory. Back in my church, we're, we're working through uh, the Old Testament, uh, the, old, the whole Old Testament, that'd be long. Uh, we're working through the Old Testament prophets. Uh, Joel came to preach Joel for us, and my friend is doing Jonah this morning. And we were running through it yesterday, and I said, you know, Jonah gives thanks for being in the belly of the whale, not for the resurrection part, but actually being in it. That looks like salvation. All the things that look terrible in Christ, the cross, become glory. This is the moment of glory. It's not a surprise. Just as Hannah read right at the beginning of our worship, you know, he was in the form of God and he gave it up and and was obedient to death, even death on a cross, that he might be glorified. And... This is one of those moments in John's gospel where John is like sneaking in the fact that Jesus is actually God. Because he says, you know, glorify me. And we know from our Old Testament in Isaiah, God says, I can't share my glory with anyone who isn't me. And Jesus is like, well, guess what then? That's me. Sneaky. But let's not move past the fact that in, in, in praying to be glorified, he's saying, I want my moment of glory and it's death. And this is a real challenge to us. This is a real challenge to us. If you're a Christian here today, you know, if you've been baptized in a death like his to live a life like his, you are called to live like him. I don't like that when I read passages like this. I don't want to live a like, life like this. Now, thankfully, very few of us, particularly in the West, don't have to worry about dying for our faith. But I do think this challenges our perspective on glory. Because what is your moment of glory? You know, what's, what's your moment that you picture, that you visualize? You know, thousands of adoring fans, you've done a fantastic job. Maybe you pass your exams with flying colors. Maybe you score a great goal on the five-a-side pitches up there. I've played many times. It's never happened. Or maybe it's in the church. You get to preach. You look glorious. There's a hundred odd people. I look glorious today. Maybe it's smaller than that. Maybe it's you get to lead worship. You get to lead a Bible study. But it's glory, isn't it? Everyone likes you. This is not how Jesus defines glory. Jesus defines glory as sacrifice. And that's the life we're called to live. Service, sacrifice, and scorn. I'm learning as a church planter, as a church pastor, scorn is very much part of the job. And sometimes I want to defend myself and shout out, what does Isaiah say about Jesus? He opened not his mouth. Ours is the way of scorn. 
but, oh, hallelujah, but, our salvation, our righteousness, our resurrection, our eternal life, to use Jesus' words, is not won or lost by how much we measure up to the life of service to which we're called. That would be terrifying. Our victory is not in performance, but it is in the glory of the cross. Amen? Because when we look upon him, when we look upon him who is bleeding, when we look upon him who bears the nails due us and our sin, when we look upon him who was without sin and yet became sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God, we are saved. When I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, and they thought maybe is that ascension? Is it some glorious moment in the sky? Is it another transfiguration? Who knows? No, he says, when I'm lifted up, when I'm lifted up on a cross, I will draw all people to myself. This is the glory of Jesus. That he was obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. And everyone whom the Father gives to the Son by imparting faith by the Spirit receives eternal life and will be resurrected with him in glory. Amen? Because that's what Jesus says. Bring me back to the glory which I had. Except the good news is that he's not going alone. Because it's into that glory. As Jesus says, verse 5, I'm going back to the glory that I had with you, Father. We now enter with Christ. This is the glory of the cross that Christ began in glory. In the presence of the Father, came to earth, took on flesh, took on death, was resurrected, and then ascended back into glory back to his father, but now no longer alone. Now with a train of believers, a host of captives on his train, you and me, following him into eternal life. We were so far from God, we couldn't hope to measure up, and so instead he came to us. That's the gospel, isn't it? And he took our sin, he took our shame, he took our death onto his own body and defeated them and called us into his glory. That's the great exchange into the very presence of the triune God. And friends, perhaps you're not a Christian here today. And this whole life of scorn doesn't seem very appealing. Count the cost, Jesus says. But if you're not a Christian here today, listen to what I say. Listen to this truth. You cannot, cannot, cannot earn the favor of God, the forgiveness of sins, freedom from shame, or eternal life just by imitating Christ, by copying him, by being the best you you can be, by living your best life. You have to be very, very best life. No, a life lived like Christ comes by his spirit dwelling within you. But to receive that, what do we do? We don't work hard, we gaze on him. We gaze on him in his moment of glory, naked and bleeding, ridiculed, crucified, and declare him, ridiculous as it may seem, declare that man our Lord and Savior. And when we do that, we receive the resurrection that came three days later. And when we know that, that's actually how we start to understand some of this next question, how the Son gives glory to the Father. Glorify the Son, get him to the cross, that the world see, so that he might glorify the Father. I don't know about you, but I sat down to study this and I thought, how? 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 That doesn't seem to follow. How, how does Jesus glorify the Father? 
And how is it that Christ crucified is the means by which the Father is glorified? Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Well, there's a couple of reasons, and the first one we've actually begun to explore already. The Father is glorified in the crucifixion of the Son, verse 2, since, because, as a result of the crucifixion and resurrection, because the Father has given him authority to impart eternal life to those who receive it. If you know anything about John's gospel, you know that's his point. Okay? If I asked any of you to name, if you knew any verses in John, it would probably be John chapter 3, verse 16, yeah? I know some of you are like, oh, John 10, 10. I know that one better. (laughs) But generally, we know that one. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, yeah? This is the point. But that still doesn't really answer the question of how. How is the Father glorified in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Well, Jesus says in verse 3, this is eternal life. Suddenly, John is defining his terms that he set up in chapter 3. This is eternal life, that they know you. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is how the Son glorifies the Father by his crucifixion. That by the saving work of the cross, by the resurrection on the third day, by the Spirit poured out by the ascended Christ, we now know God. We know God. The Father in Christ's death and resurrection is suddenly revealed to us. We who are, who are dead in our sins and our pride because of the cross, because of Christ being glorified, we now know God. You guys don't look shocked enough for that. We know God. Who's got that? No, I, no, you haven't. I haven't got that. You know God. Oh, yeah, just call him up now and again and see how he's doing. You know God. That's the gospel. It's almost, uh, in some, uh, St. Paul's definition in, in Galatians is someone who knows God. Formerly you didn't know, know God. Now you know God. Ta-da. That's who you are if you're a Christian. And that's good news. That's such good news. That's what humanity longs for. Other religions might claim to know about God, You know, secular humanists might deny that there is a God, but you, you know God. Okay, well, I I think it's exciting. (laughs) It's bananas, isn't it? See, I I think, maybe it's just me, but I get a bit weirded out by the idea of eternal life. Am I going to get tired? You know? Is it going to be a bit, is it going to be a bit boring? It's just like this world, but a bit longer, isn't it? This is going on long enough, crumbs. Now, no one can tell you exactly what heaven is going to be like, but we do get snapshots of it in the Bible. And this is one of them. Eternal life is the knowledge of God. D.A. Carson put it like this. Eternal life isn't so much everlasting life as knowledge of the everlasting one. And it's the point of the gospel all the way from the garden to today. Jeremiah, the prophet, years before this was written, prophesied, they shall all know me. That's the point. They shall know me. That's the glory of revelation at the end, isn't it? That we're with God and we know him. From the least to the greatest, says Jeremiah. 
This is the cry of our hearts. St. Augustine said, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Think back, even John's Gospel, chapter 1. No one's ever seen God, he says. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one knows God, and yet in Christ he is made known. There's remarkable truth in there. I just want us to focus on it for a second. There's remarkable truth because God in himself, theologians would say this is one of the attributes of God, God in himself is unknowable because he's God and you're not, because he's holy and you're not. Okay? And yet, the miracle of Jesus is that he has made him known. So God is both unknowable and knowable through the person of Jesus, through his word and through his spirit dwelling within you. And if both those things are true, and they are, that God is both knowable and unknowable, it means there's more to find out about him. But if it keeps being true, that God is unknowable and yet knowable, then there's still more to find out about him. Okay, this is not an eternal stage, right? I'm going to run out of space. If you're a Christian, if you know God you are going to get to know more about God and know God himself better throughout all eternity. If that hurts your head, that's okay. We are finite beings. Our literal brains run from one, have a beginning and end, yeah? And yet we know there's always eternity. There's something beyond all those things. For eternity, if you know Jesus, you're going to keep getting to know Jesus better. Isn't that amazing? This is eternal life. Eternal life, then, is not so much counted in length of time, but in depth of knowledge about God. And not knowledge that just puffs up, you know, about God, but, but, but that you really know God, and thus, hey, what's the point of the passage? Glorify him as a result. And friends, as I, I've been preparing this. I just, this is not part of the passage, this is just from me. I wondered if there was a specific message for some in the room who've known God for a long time. You've been around church, you've done some reading. Yes, Rick, I know about the attributes of God. And nothing seems to surprise you about God anymore. I wonder if there's anyone like that. And I, know, I know this fluctuates, I've been here. And when there is, there's a temptation to say, I already know everything about God. I don't need to learn anymore. In fact, I don't know if there is anything more for me to learn. Do you know, I don't even know if I have to go on a Sunday anymore. Because that Rick guy is just going to tell me stuff I already know. Friends, if you know Jesus, you have an eternity of getting to know him better. You are not finished yet. And if that is you, I just encourage you to speak to Andy or Keith or, or someone you know. Just say, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm in that stuck place. They'd love to walk that with you. Because the challenge is not that we know more about God. The challenge is that we know God and glorify God as a result. And that leads me neatly <laughs> onto the second way the text tells us that the crucifixion of Christ glorifies the Father. And this will be my final comment. John 17, 4 says, I glorified you on the earth. Ah, here's, we see how Jesus glorifies the Father. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Which, of course, he hasn't done yet. He hasn't been to the cross yet. He, that's why he's praying. He needs strength to do that. But he knows that the Father is glorified in finished work. 
on tasks completed. I don't know about you, it was bank holiday Monday, as I said with Keith earlier, and I decided now is the day to smash up my deck. It's rotten, and I'm going to replace it with a patio. Jesus says I'll tear down the temple and build it in three days. I couldn't do that with a patio. It's taken me much longer. Is it a finished work? It is not. I'm going to go home to rubble and slates. And there's a temptation, isn't there? Just to leave it. Come back to it next summer. Probably got some moss on it by then. Uh, That seems more of a faff. I'll come back to the year after. This is a very trite example of the agonies of Gethsemane. But the Father is glorified when we finish our work. Finish the race. Complete the task. You know the right thing to do, James says, so do it. This is what we learn from Jesus today. You're never at the end of knowing God, but finish the work that is set before you. And hallelujah, Jesus does. Just two chapters later, it is finished, he declares. And so we can all stand in confidence that the work is finished for us. I'm not here to tell you, you need to be working harder. Get that patio done. Come on. Read those books. Go to church. That's really important. It is finished, Jesus declares. He has completed the good work, but now you are called to live a life like him. Do you know what's really releasing? Jesus is praying for strength. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, who knows exactly what it's like for you to be tempted to leave those patio slabs where they are, he asks for help. And you can too. In fact, you probably need to ask more than he does. If he needed the strength of the Spirit, how much more do you? The Son is glorified in his sacrifice by which the Father is glorified as our sins are washed away, our eyes are opened to him by the Spirit. And now we are called to glorify and know him now and forever, which is a mighty and unachievable task if we do not call on him for aid. Father, give us your Spirit that we might glorify you in the Son. Amen.